0: Good morning, Deer Creek Church. It's great to have you join us on our live stream this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in the book of Revelation And uh, if you don't know where Revelation's at, it's the last book of the Bible. So if you have one at home, go ahead and pick that up. Last book of the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 10 this morning. Uh, And before you get there, just an introduction. My name's Daniel. I'm one of the assistant pastors here. And also before we begin, I want to spend just a moment. Let's pray that God would be with us, that he would fill us with his spirit, that he would open our eyes and that he would open our minds so that we could learn from his word to us this morning. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, uh, we come before you as people who often are confused. We come to you as people who often don't know what you would have us to do as we live our lives. And we pray that as we look at this book that you've inspired, that your servant John wrote, that you would give us greater clarity into that question of what role do we play? What is our purpose? And God, what would you have us to do to be your people in your world, to testify to your son, Jesus? And God, we ask that uh, any confusing parts of this passage, that you would shine your light on them and that we would really see uh, your word for all that it has for us. And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, for those of you uh, who don't know me very well, I'm a big, avid lover of sports, and I love sports movies. And one of my favorite movies growing up was the movie Rudy. Uh, Rudy is the story of a boy. He grows up, uh, and he's enamored with Notre Dame football. And he lives his whole life, in fact, with these aspirations to play one day for Notre Dame, to step on that field and play for his favorite sports team. And because of that, he's, he's working in a factory in his mid-20s and he actually decides he's going to go and he's going to enroll in Notre Dame and try and make the football team as a walk-on. And for years, we see that he works through the practice squad and he's just simply trying to fulfill a role. He's simply trying to be plugged in in a place where he can be useful in order in one day to actually step on the field and play for real. And as the movie goes on, Rudy Finally, during his senior year, the last three plays of a football game, he gets in. He gets to step on the field. And during the last play of his senior season, he actually records a sack. He gets to finally fulfill the role that he felt he was prepared for his whole life. And, and many of us, if we're honest, when we look at our lives, we, we similarly have that kind of question. What role is God calling us to? Or what purpose would he have me undertake? And because of that, we we go and see people like career counselors. And you can go to these career counselors. You can take tests and spend hours of interviews and be peppered with questions to have someone else tell you what you might be good at and what you might be a good role for you to play in the workforce. Or maybe you've seen the Enneagram test. The Enneagram test is an extensive personality profile that tells you how you can best relate to people around you so that you can fulfill the role in that relationship. So we all want to know what our role is. What, what would we have to do in the world to fulfill our purpose? And it's a good question to ask because it's, it's a similar question that the book of Revelation actually gives us. We've seen that Jesus, through John, is writing this book to a group of churches that are in Asia Minor, which is in modern day Turkey. These are seven churches that were asking the question, what would God have us to do, have us do? These are people that had been following Jesus for some time now, and they wanted to know, now that they'd given their lives over to the message of Jesus, what was their response supposed to be? How are they supposed to fulfill their role in God's great plan? And now if you're just joining us this morning, maybe this is your first time joining us on our live stream, we are in the book of Revelation, and we're in chapter 10 and 11, and up to this point... You could really describe the book of Revelation really as as three waves, right? There's kind of been three waves of seven that we've seen. The first wave, which we've talked about, was John's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These were letters of challenge and comfort. Challenge to those who had grown complacent in their faith, who had grown lukewarm in their faith. But it was also uh, letters of comfort, comfort to those who were suffering, those who were following Jesus and meeting opposition from the world. The second wave that we've seen in this book, the second wave of seven, we saw a scroll with seven seals. And this was a very important point in the book of Revelation because we saw that in this scroll contained the purpose of God, the purpose of God for the universe, The the purpose that God was going to bring of bringing His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as this scroll was opened in the breaking of seven seals, we saw that one of God's ways of bringing about His purpose in the world is through judgment. That God, in a very real way, in order to bring His kingdom on earth, has to bring to account, bring to judgment the evil and wickedness and suffering of this world. And last week, we saw a third wave. It was kind of the the third wave up to this point where God unleashed seven trumpets. There were seven angels who blew seven trumpets. And we said that these trumpets were a signal of war. See, in the ancient world in order to get somebody's attention that a war is taking place, people would blow trumpets. Now today, you know, we, we have walkie talkies, so it's a little bit more discreet, but if you wanted to signal active attack on an enemy, what people would do is they would blow a trumpet signal. And we saw that these war trumpets in revelation to Jewish years would have brought back recollection to the old Testament story of the exodus where God's people were in slavery, and in order to liberate God's people, what God did was he brought hail and fire from the sky to pour judgment out on Egypt. That was the first trumpet that we saw. The second trumpet was similar. Water was turned into blood and made poison and undrinkable. That was the second and third trumpet. And then on and on these go with these images of the Exodus, the sun was darkened, locusts swarmed the earth, all pointing to that God was bringing his active judgment and punishment on earth. And now we're in the middle of Revelation and what's going on here? Well, one way to look at what John is about to unfold for us today can be quite confusing because some people actually see these three waves in Revelation and where we're at this morning as kind of a chronological sequence, right? They see it kind of as a history of, well, event A is going to happen. And then after event A, there will be event B. And then after event B, there will be event C. And they read Revelation kind of like a sequence of events unfolding in this particular order. But as we look this morning and as we continue on in Revelation, I want you to think as you're reading this book more of a hologram cup. Now, maybe you haven't seen these in a while, but I have uh, young children. So when they take baths, they have the baths. They have these hologram cups that we pour water on them with. And my daughter Lainey has one hologram cup with a picture of Minnie Mouse. And if you look at Minnie Mouse from one angle, she has a pink bow and a pink dress. And then you turn her slightly, and you see her in a white bow and a white dress. And then you turn her again, and she's in a yellow bow and a yellow dress. And I think that is the right way to read Revelation. God is not showing us that there will be seven seals that are opened and judgment will be brought and then seven trumpets and that will be brought after the seven seals. Instead, what God is showing us is from different perspectives, the same event from different angles, which is him bringing his judgment, bringing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And so last week, we heard the blast of the sixth trumpet. And after the sixth judgment was brought upon the earth, we read something really interesting. That God, in bringing these judgments, the result was found in verse 20 of chapter nine, that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent. That's very interesting. Facing the judgment of God, They did not repent. It's similar to the story of Pharaoh in the Old Testament. When the plagues were being brought on Egypt, Pharaoh did not soften his heart under the judgment of God and turn to him. Instead, his heart was hardened against God. He did not repent. So here we notice we're between the sixth and seventh trumpet and the narrative slows down. If you're looking at chapters 10 and 11, it's a long section. And all great stories do this. They slow down when they want to show you something important. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, remember at the beginning of that movie, the children are running around the professor's house and then Lucy goes into the room where the wardrobe is and everything slows down. She goes to the wardrobe and it happens very slowly. And it's the director's way of saying, watch this, watch what's going on. And John does that same thing here. He slows the narrative down and he sees something very significant. The first thing he sees is the angel, a mighty angel coming down from heaven with an open scroll. And what stands out about this angel if you notice in these verses, is the similarity he has to Jesus, as Jesus is described in the book of Revelation. In verse one, we see that this angel has a rainbow over his head. That's a lot like the throne of Jesus in chapter five. His face is like the sun, similar to Jesus' face as described in Revelation chapter one. His legs are like pillars of fire, which resemble Jesus' legs of burnished bronze in chapter 1. And his voice is like a roaring lion, that's verse 3 in chapter 10, which draws our mind back to Jesus, the lion from the tribe of Judah. So all of this sounds familiar. And what this is meant to show us is that this angel comes from the very throne of Jesus he has the very message of Jesus. He's going to bring the very purpose of Jesus for John and for the churches. He's a lot like the White House press secretary, probably the most unfortunate job in all of American politics. You know, the White House press secretary, they're the person that gathers around, they, you know, they have a huge room full of the press and they're not hired to, to, to give their personal opinion. They're not hired to give their spin on things, but instead they're supposed to toe the party line. The message of the president is supposed to be the message of the White House secretary. And John says this angel comes down in that same role. He comes down from heaven with the authority of Jesus and he speaks beginning in verse three. When he called out, we're told that the seven thunders, sounded so we know what to expect here don't we remember when the seals were opened when the seals were broken forth it brought destruction on a quarter of the earth one-fourth of the earth and then the trumpets were blasted and it brought destruction on a third of the earth and so what are these thunders well we expect that these thunders are sent to destroy half of the earth But something interesting happens. That's not what takes place. John is told in verse four that when the seven thunders had sounded, he was about to write, but heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He's giving a solemn oath before the God of heaven. And he swore by him who lives for ever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. No more delay. That's a very interesting word, delay. Richard Bacham is one of the leading scholars on the book of Revelation. And he says this about this word delay and the judgments that preceded it. He says, the judgments up to and including that of the sixth trumpet are strictly limited, bringing judgment on a quarter and one third of the earth. That is because these are warning judgments with the intent and design to bring humanity to repentance, to bring the world back to God. In other words, Bakham is saying that every judgment God has brought so far in Revelation was a warning. It was God's way of getting our attention in order to show us something greater is coming in the future. I recently just bought a truck, but I actually bought a truck before the truck. So I bought this Chevy from a guy and I had signed all the paperwork and I thought it was a great truck, took it on a trest drive. It was really fun to drive around. And as I was pulling onto the street of my house, I started noticing a really ominous rumbling sound coming from the engine. So I pulled off to the side of the road and as I did, I noticed bleep, the check engine light popped on. And as I looked under the car, I noticed that oil was spilling out as fast as it possibly could. But that check engine light, that red light that popped on, told me that behind that light, even though that light was a problem, behind it was something that was much greater, a deeper problem that was actually about to come my way if I ignored it. If I ignored this light now, there would be much greater problems if I didn't take this truck back and try and get a refund. And we saw that the seven seals right? Think about it. The seven seals, which brought war and plague and famine and economic downturn. All of these seals, according to what John is writing here, were warnings from God. They were the check engine light telling us, designed to show us That something greater is coming. These judgments that we see unfolding on the earth presently, pestilence, disease, death, warfare, economic downturn, all of these, according to Revelation and John, are judgments that are limited to show us that something greater is coming. A greater judgment is coming. And here's the thing, Jesus himself says the same thing. We actually see Jesus talking this way as well. Uh, In the gospel of Luke, Jesus is approached by some of his followers and some of his followers come and they tell him about these Galilean people who had been uh, destroyed by Pontius Pilate, who was the governor of, uh, of that Roman province during the time. And we're told that Pontius Pilate had grabbed these Galileans and he had actually used them as a human sacrifice in order to appease a Roman God. And Jesus, hearing this report, said to these people, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? And Jesus' response was, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, unless you turn back to God... You will all likewise perish. See, Jesus is saying here that there is a day coming. There's a day coming that God will bring his judgment on all sinful people, on all people who have not turned back to him. There's a day coming when the warning will give way to the reality where the limited judgments of God will give way to the unlimited judgment of God on earth. And so John in verse 7 of Revelation 10 says that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. In other words, this is a reference to what the Old Testament prophets called the day of the Lord. It was a day when God would bring universal judgment on humankind. And what John is saying is that when that seventh trumpet blast, God's judgment will be brought. His universal judgment will be brought on earth. See, when Jesus came during his first coming, he did not come to announce a judgment. Instead, he came to announce peace. Right When Jesus came to the world in his first coming, he came to offer forgiveness to his enemies to extend a message of good news that he would die in their place. And if we place our faith in him, then all of our sins would be forgiven so that we might not face the judgment of God. Jesus bore that in our place in his first coming. But Jesus is also clear in passages like this and others that there is a second coming when Jesus will come not with peace, but he will come in judgment in the day of the Lord to bring God's reign and his judgment in full. So, what's John's role in all of this, and why is he seeing this? Well, in between these trumpets, John is told, beginning in verse 8, to take the scroll, this open scroll of the purpose of God, which is in the angel's hand. And he's told in verse 9 to take and eat this scroll. It's a way of saying that John is to ingest this message and make it known to the people of God, to make it known to the churches. And we're told that it's going to be sweet as it goes into his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. So he's bringing a bitter-sweet message, a message of good news and bad news tied together. And so what is the message? Well, John is given a measuring rod like a staff in chapter 11, verse 1. We're told he was given a measuring rod like a staff and was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And they and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,000 260 days clothed in sackcloth. These witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, there's a few things happening here. First, prophets in the Bible were often asked to kind of do theatrical displays in order to get their message across. Isaiah, for instance, Isaiah was a prophet of God. He was one time asked by God to strip naked, and he was asked to walk down the middle of the street in order to illustrate that Israel would one day be stripped of all of their possessions and brought into exile because of their disobedience. In the New Testament, we see a prophet whose name is Agabus. He did another theatrical display where he tied up Paul the apostle Paul with a belt in order to illustrate that he would be captured and arrested by authorities. And John, as God's prophet here, is asked to do the same. He's told to take this measuring rod and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. He's doing this theatrical display, which is all meant to symbolize God's protection of his people. That's what the measuring rod represents, protection of God's people, that God needs to know the measurement and the boundaries of the area that he needs to protect. So imagine you own a house and you live in the middle of a prairie and you wanted to keep coyotes out of your house in order to protect all your possessions, your chickens and you know all of your farm animals. What you would do is you'd call a surveyor out to your house and they would come and they would measure the boundaries of your land in order that you would know the boundaries and be able to put up a fence in order to protect all of your livestock. And the same thing goes on here. John has a similar, uh, he, he has a similar mission. He's to measure the temple, the altar and the people. And he calls this temple his Two witnesses, two lampstands, and two olive trees, all of which are symbolic names for the church. In other words, John is told to measure the people of God, and they will be protected by God. But in verse 2, he's told to leave out the court on the outside of the temple, because it, the holy city, will be trampled. So even though the church is protected by God, what John is saying is they will undergo persecution and tribulation. They will undergo opposition. The world will actually trample them and beat them down. And that's what we actually see unfold in the rest of the chapter of chapter 11. In verse 3, we're told that, the, the church is to witness to Jesus, to prophecy in sackcloth, right? Sackcloth is a way of illustrating repentance, to tell people, turn back to God. They're going to witness to the world in sackcloth. Then verse six, we're told that they have the power. The church has the power of Elijah and Moses. They carry the same message as Elijah and Moses. Elijah was a man who was able to stop the sky from raining And Moses was able to bring the judgment of God by turning water into blood. We see that in verse six. So they have the message of God on their lips. Then verses seven and eight, we see that the church is opposed by Satan. These witnesses are opposed by Satan, described as a beast that rises from the bottomless pit. And they're put to death for their message just as Jesus was crucified by his enemies. And finally, after being mocked and refused burial in verses nine and 10, they're finally brought back to life and they ascend to heaven in verses 11 and 12. And in other words, this is is very important. What John is saying to his church and what is contained in the scroll is that the church's role in the world is What they're supposed to fulfill is to faithfully witness to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That's the church's role in the world, to witness to Jesus, just as Jesus, right? Just as Jesus called the nations to repentance, to turn back from worshiping false gods and turn back to him the true god of the universe just as jesus brought a prophetic message accompanied with signs and wonders and healings and miraculous deeds just as jesus was opposed by satan and crucified in the city of jerusalem and just as jesus was resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven so too his church the people of god are called to mirror the ministry and the mission of Jesus to the world. Before the final trumpet blast in the day of the Lord, God's people are to mirror and retell the message of Jesus so that people might inherit salvation. It's the primary way that God plans to establish his kingdom on earth As it is in heaven. Do you think of the church in that regard? You, as the people of God, if you have faith in Jesus, do you think of your role in this regard? That your primary role is to declare and demonstrate the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to people so that they might enter God's kingdom? What this is saying is that it's not simply through judgment that God brings his kingdom on earth, although there is judgment. And we have to tell people that there is judgment. It's a very real reality of the Bible. But it's also through the witness and message of the church, through sharing the gospel, that people come to faith in Jesus and enter the kingdom of God. And so just as John kind of describes in these fanciful images what it looks like when God's kingdom comes on earth, I want to share with you a story. It's a story of a man named Americo. Americo described himself as a violent and angry man. This is a true story. He said he had, a, uh, he had always run into trouble with drug lords in his homeland of El Salvador. And after witnessing the death of one of his best friends, he realized that he might be next. So in the year 1981, he fled his hometown of El Salvador and made his way to Los Angeles along with his wife, Margarita, and their five children. Americo's son, his name was Juan, he loved his dad, but Americo said he saw in his son the same violent temperament and anger that had gotten him into so much trouble. Yet it was one night at a church youth group, that Juan was told about Jesus. He was told about how Jesus had been crucified by his enemies and that through his death and resurrection, he could find forgiveness of sins. And compelled to tell people about this, he actually told his father. And his father, about a year later, inspired by his son, accepted Jesus and began attending church. But that's not when the actual transformation or real change happened in America's life. One day, Juan noticed some gangsters picking on a local street preacher, and he fought the three of them off, and he was proud to tell his dad about it. But Américo warned his son. He said, son, you have to be careful. But it was too late. Three days later, the three gangsters approached the 21-year-old Juan and shot him three times in the head, leaving him dead on the streets of Los Angeles. I remember seeing my son's body lying on the street, said Americo. At that moment, I wanted to be like the man I used to be before I knew Jesus. So he grabbed his 45 milliliter pistol and he headed out the door with an old friend on a tip where the three men were living. His wife, Margarita, pleading with him, what's going on? You can't do that. But on the way, Americo recalls hearing God speak to him directly, saying, don't do this. Do not take vengeance. Vengeance is mine. You do not have to do what you're going to do. You have to treat them with my love. Love your enemies as I love mine. And almost immediately, Americo threw the gun down and said to his friend, I can't do this. I can't carry this out. I follow Jesus. Jesus doesn't want me to do this. His friend called him a coward and dropped him off at where the gangster's hideout was. And Americo reached the apartment. He walked inside unarmed where the gangsters were holed up. And as he walked in, he startled the gangsters who all drew weapons on him. But the grieving father explained, but he was not there to seek revenge. He said, I come humbled to speak to you about Jesus. He later said that his mouth shook because he felt a strong battle inside, but he said he was overcome that day by the love of God, even for these men who killed my son. Americo then explained the good news to these men who had killed his son, that Jesus offered forgiveness to the men who nailed him to the cross and crucified him in Jerusalem. He said, this Jesus offered forgiveness to him and he pleaded with them to accept the offer of forgiveness of Jesus for themselves. And these three men were so moved, they prayed then and there with Americo and asked Jesus to be their savior, the one who died, who lives again and was resurrected and ascended for them. It was right then and there, Americo said, that I started to experience the ministry of love that the Lord had given to me. So don't you see... See, all America was doing is what John describes here in Revelation chapter 11. He merely mirrored the ministry of love that had been given to him. He merely witnessed to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus with his words, but also in his actions. That's the message that John delivers to the church. He says, just as Jesus what he has done in sacrificially dying for his enemies for the forgiveness of sin, that that work, that work is to be displayed and mirrored by his church through sacrificial love of enemies, calling them to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins so that they might turn toward God and enter his kingdom. Now, remember the verse that we started with, When we began that after the judgments of God, we were told that the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons of idols and of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Well, we see something remarkable happen here. In the Old Testament, Elijah, when he was carrying out his ministry, he was told that 7,000 faithful people would be spared the judgment of God, a remnant. When Isaiah was prophesying to the people, he was told that one-tenth of the people, faithful people, would not be exiled. They would be spared the judgment of God But something remarkable happens in chapter 11, verse 13, the closing words of what John sees. He's told, at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 were killed in the earthquake and the rest, they were terrified and they gave glory to the God of heaven. Do you see what's going on here? The Old Testament prophets then, God's witnesses then, declared a message that only a faithful minority would be spared the judgment of God. But here, through the witness of God's people, it's not the faithful minority who are saved. Instead, it's the faithless majority that repent and find forgiveness of their sins, that glorify God. What John is trying to communicate here is that through the role and ministry of the church, of God's people, he is drawing people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation and every people group to himself in their ministry will be effective. God's kingdom will be full of adulterers and sorcerers and murderers. He will bring unrepentant sinners to repentance through the ministry of God's people and his church. You remember in high school, the difference between centripetal force and centrifugal force. I didn't remember it until I looked it back up on Wikipedia, but I thought this would be a decent illustration. Remember, centrifugal force is a force that goes from the inside out. When uh, a discus thrower, right, is spinning around and he lets go of the discus, that centrifugal force, it throws the discus, discus a long distance, centripetal force is the opposite, right? It's a force that goes from the outside in. And that is the role that Jesus has given his people, to be a centrifugal force and a centripetal force. We are people sent out brought out into the world as lampstands to witness and bring the message of forgiveness of sins through Jesus. And the goal of it all, the purpose of it all, is to bring people in, to draw them into relationship with the God who created them and to show them the love of God. And that message should make sense to us. There was a theologian. His name was Gregory of Nazianzus. Try and say that five times fast. Gregory of Nazianzus. He has a quote that's endured through the ages up till today. It's it's this quote. What Jesus has not assumed has not been healed. What Jesus has not assumed has not been healed. What Gregory meant by that was that Jesus had to leave heaven, to go out from heaven and assume a human body, to assume everything about our humanity except for sin, in order that we might be healed and forgiven of our sin. Jesus had to leave his throne and assume humanity so that we might be healed. And in like manner, Jesus gives us that same role, to be people who are sent out, people who are guilty of murder, people who are guilty of idol worship, people who are guilty and broken of every sin imaginable. He sent us out so that we might bring his message of healing, so that he might bring people before the final trumpet blast into his kingdom so they might live with him forever and ever. That's the role of the church. That's the role we have to play in God's great story. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we are not worthy of this calling and this role that you've given us, your church. We confess as Deer Creek Church that we are guilty of unrepentant hearts, of all different types of sin and brokenness, that we fall short of the glory of God over and over and over again. And Jesus, we are so grateful that you have come, that you have taken on humanity, you have taken on our weakness and died for our darkness, died for our sins and were crucified, resurrected and you now have ascended into heaven to show us that we can be forgiven and that we can call other people as your witnesses, as your lampstand, as your people in the world to draw them to you so that you might bring them to their heavenly father. We ask by your Holy Spirit that your Holy Spirit would work in us and through us to help us witness to those around us, to help us tell this great message to others so that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven and your kingdom would be filled with sinners like us and your kingdom would be filled with people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation and every people group. We ask these things in your name, by the power of your spirit, to the glory of God the Father, amen.